Welcome to the Association Strong Podcast, where we offer insight from both a seasoned association exec and an entrepreneur. I'm Dave Will. And I'm Tom Morrison. Listen in as we discuss and debate hot topics in the association community. Don't forget to subscribe and share us with your friends. Tommy Bahami, welcome back, brother. I think Dave. Uh, I, I love talking to you as much as we've been talking to each other recently. This is fun. I know, man. I love what we call Association Strong Podcast because it truly is empowering associations to make the decisions based upon great information. I'm so excited what we're going to have today because the guy we had you today- got a, You got your hero in here. Like, Ron, he talks about you a lot. Like, it's almost <laughs> awkward how much he talks about you. It makes well, me uncomfortable sometimes. Well, I come <laughs> home every day and I look at my crystal ball and it's all foggy and then I, I put my hands- I, I kind of I kind of look at the crystal ball and think of Ron Hetrick and the, what he's telling me, and it all becomes clear. It's still it's still creepy it's, the way you're describing it even now with your hands and I, I just don't want to look at Ron's crystal ball. Yeah, it's a... <laughs> all right. So so Tom, tell us tell us about Ron again. This is Ron's second time with us, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, so, so go ahead. Why do you want to bring Ron back? We had Ron in a couple months ago, and he really unpacked the whole element. It was like of the, a year ago, I think. It yeah, was. What, it, was. What, it seems like yesterday. It was a year, yeah. So, but Ron unpacked the data and the why behind the, the, the labor shortage that we're currently in, and it's all coming true. And, and so Ron spoke at our meeting um, last week, and he really unpacked some data that really shared the why behind and it had some silver. Every time I talk to Ron, he's like, man, this ain't going to be good news for Remembrance Time. It ain't going to be good news. And he just spoke at our national conference in, in San Antonio. And for the first time ever, Ron came to a meeting and said, Tom, I've got some, I think I got some good positive news to end on, some silver lining to all this labor shortage stuff. And it's a different way of thinking. I'm like, I can't wait to hear it. And when I heard it, the dots were connected on so many things on inflation, where we're headed as an economy, why the worker shortage is spiking you know, and how it may come back to some sense of normality. So I'm excited today to let people that are listening to us listen to what our conversation about what Ron is sharing, the data behind the path we're on. It's incredible. Because here's the thing, Dave, if you know the good information, even the path you may not want to take can be a good path because you're able to take it with good information. That's what I think Ron's going to bring to all of us. Let's let Ron tell us about some of this quote, air quotes here, good information. So Ron, I hear the, the future is bright. Uh, futures, uh, it's funny. I think we're not used to defining bright the way that I'm now defining it. And that's what I was talking about last week. There's a lot of things that we've always historically looked at and said, you know, this is bad or this is good. And now we're kind of spinning all of this stuff on its heels. One of the things I've been getting a lot from people are, uh, are we about to, you know, enter a recession? And I keep telling them, you better pray for that. And they're like, what, what, what are you talking about? And I'm like, we are so overheated. Everything uh, that's happened, the way we've spent money in the past year and a half in particular, is so unnatural, is so unlike anything we've ever seen historically, that when you see it, it all clicks into place like people, what we've been calling a supply chain crisis was really never about the supply chain. If we bought, basically in a year and a half, we spent on retail goods, what we normally spend in eight years. So just think about that. If I went to a restaurant with all of my friends and we all sat down, we've been going there every day, but one night we all went in and we ordered eight times as much food and the restaurant's like, we're out of food. Would you say that's a supply crisis for that restaurant? Of course you wouldn't, but that's exactly what we just experienced. So when you're talking about large, uh, durable goods, we spent in one year what normally takes us four years. You're talking about a curve that was like just barely moving for decades and then it turned and went straight into the sky. For like a year and that's not natural you know a natural thing is for that curve to just continue to go along like it did but when you look at that the supply chain never had a chance people never had a chance you would never think to order that many goods and if you want to like hey i'm looking for an example okay the toilet paper crisis back in march of 2020 you can't have everybody all of a sudden buying tons and tons and tons of toilet paper and then we're like we're out of toilet paper it's like <laughs> We're not out of toilet. You have tons of it sitting in your house. Okay. Like you're not out. I hope, man, I hope you didn't use all that toilet paper. Okay. Like, uh, Ron, just, Ron, just to put that in perspective, there was a moment where we had, because we we ordered not thinking we'd get it. We had it all show up at once from Amazon. We had 210 rolls of toilet paper at oh one God. time in our house. It was nuts. <laughs> 
Cut back no. on the fiber, if that's the case. Wait, can I, let me, uh, I don't know that I want to challenge that. I was trying to, because I always, like, that's where my mind goes. I, I always, I, I guess it's annoying, but it's also a good trait that I think I, I think critically about things. Like, I'm always trying to figure and poke it a little bit, which can be very, very annoying for my wife, for example. But, but that aside, I, I don't think I can debate with you, but I want some clarity on this, because I think when I say there's an issue with the supply chain mm -hmm. it's uh we can't get parts but it's not because we used all the we used all the parts that were in inventory but the problem is there was like uh let's just say a year i don't know what it is but there's a long period of time where those factory workers that were producing stuff were shut down they stopped producing so the actual and that's what caused time, this hiccup right yeah um, the actual amount of time that we were shut down was a little shy of two months. We, now, a lot of people we don't were, understand But that. look at China. I mean, China was shut down multiple they times. They didn't shut down at all initially. They shut down recently. At that point, we had already done a lot of the purchasing. So if you start to look at it, we basically go through this massive demand spike. And so we're, we're constantly hammering that demand. Now, the only industry that is immune from, <laughs> immune, this is actually a bad word. The industry that wasn't affected like this was autos because they couldn't get semiconductors because once they said we don't want them those plants because those those particular chips don't make these plants any money so they immediately converted to other more higher value chips the autos companies come back and go no no we need the chips and like no we've already committed our capacity so that industry in a weird i didn't way, know that, that i did not know that's what happened i i think my, it was my assumption that the reason we couldn't get those chips is because the factory shut down well not no no not at all we forecasted lower demand no, that's interesting okay immediately converted over to other products is those are the least profitable chips they can make this is you can research this anywhere uh they, I, they use, I believe you auto manufacturers use an older technology and they don't they don't like to make the chips they prefer not doing it so it is something where they immediately converted all of those over to more you know electronic goods type of things where they can make a lot more money and then the auto companies came back and they're like well we need the chips now and they're like we've already committed all of our production capacity so we actually have these plants are these plants are producing at a utilization rate that's higher than anything they've ever done historically now and auto companies some auto companies like gm are saying look we're fine we don't we don't have a shortage at all anymore vw bmw they're like no we're still having a shortage in fact it's probably going to go into next year if you look at actual uh, the inventory of autos, you know, the domestic autos, what's available, it's incredibly low, like record low. We've never seen anything like it. Production, of course, hasn't been able to hold up. That is true for that industry. We're going to pull that industry out because what you see is throughout the rest of durable goods, you do see these orders, uh, the orders and then production. Everything just goes into the stratosphere. So when you have all of that occurring, that is kind of what you start to get things like your like bottlenecks and things. I'm going to tell you something that helped me understand. I, I could tell that this was happening, but I didn't even think to go look at the data until I read something. So my father-in-law sends me an article and he's saying, hey, they're not shipping fertilizer to, um, to farmers right now because they're trying to cause a food crisis, which I was like, okay, that sounds a little crazy, but let me just read. The, every time I get sent something like that, I actually go and read it because it was coming down to, I think it was USX. And they were saying, they're not doing this. They're not putting it on their trains. So I, let, I looked them up and they're like, um, we have brought 100 engines out of retirement to try to meet the demand we have right now. We, we only have so many cars and everybody in, is using all of our capacity. Like we have to make critical decisions about what we can ship at any given time. But we're, we brought 100 locomotives out of retirement. I thought, why in the world would you need to bring 100 locomotives out of retirement? And it was the very first time I thought, you know what, I need to go see what orders look like right now. And I brought it up and I mean, my jaw hit the ground and I immediately went on LinkedIn. I was like, hey, you got to see this. Like, and like I said, you're talking about something that was cruising along for forever that then turned and went straight upward for a year. It's never happened in history. We've never seen anything like this. And so you're like, look, that's not real, but a, a flat line or a, just a slowly growing, growing line is real. And I started thinking, you bring a hundred things, a hundred engines out of retirement because you have that much more than you're naturally used to getting. So it's not that they were all of a sudden, you know, being put on this, like, uh, hey, everybody switched away from this to go to, uh, to um, train transport. It's they have that much more product to move. 
And then when you start to break it all down, you're just like, this is unbelievable. So here's the issue, and this is kind of what um, I was saying to Tom and, and the crew up there, is that there's actually a silver lining in all this. And that is, if you look at retail inventories, retail meaning like uh, general, general merchandise stores, their inventory bloat, has ne they've never seen an inventory bloat as much as they have now. If you saw last week Target saying, look, we're about to have massive sales because we literally have warehouses filled with products. And I don't know if you saw, came out today, retail sales went down. Naturally, they went down. Why? Because we spent in a year and a half what we normally spend in eight years. We don't, you can't keep buying this stuff. So the retail companies were so afraid that what happened to them last year was going to happen again, that they started ordering all their goods for Christmas now. On top of all of this other demand, they started ordering it. Well, all of the money that was going to buy all this stuff is done. Like we've spent through that money. So now their inventories are going way up. So what does it mean if I'm an, let's say I'm a Target or a Walmart and I've already bought what I need at the end of the year now. What does that mean for later in the year when they would normally buy? Not going to be not, buying anything. They're not buying. And here, but here, Brian, now, now unpack this a little bit. So, you know, when I looked up the definition of a recession, yep. the definition of the recession is when two quarters in a row go down trending to, yes. to, the, to the other quarter. Well, when you look at the spike, of course, we're going to see two quarters go down and we're going to be in a... We better. But, but the recession is simply, as, as I'm hearing you, the recession is simply getting us back to normality of the economy, not a lesser than normal, than the, not, not, a, not a place where it's a bad place, but it just gets us back to normality. Right. So uh, recessions have always occurred, whether it's the gas crisis of the early 1970s, the end of the Cold War recession in 19. Uh, 1991, the, the IT uh, telecom recession of 2001, the housing bubble pop in 2008, they always occur because you have a sector that is overheated unnaturally. So it is doing more than it was supposed to do. So that sector eventually comes back to earth. We got a great example. All of us who live now, we got to watch it with the housing bubble. You know, we, we basically allowed money to be borrowed without any kind of uh, capital backing and people used it and bought up all these properties, but they weren't living in those properties. So inherently the, the properties aren't aren't really that valuable because you're just using it to try to gain to gain this additional value but it's not being realized in other words people aren't living in those properties so when it came due and people were like look these things actually don't have value and that that got cratered then the whole housing market kind of collapses well it goes down and then prices go back and now the prices are back on their normal curve well were now they're 33 percent hyperinflated now so that's going to have to correct which is the next thing is going to fall but you have to understand things overheat and then they correct and they get back to normal. Historically speaking, this could be bad. So um, if you worked in the telecom industry uh, and that thing corrects, then you're going to be feeling that thing. If you work in the housing, now you got to understand housing was more than banks. Housing was construction companies. Housing was people who, who put lumber, built uh, products that go into homes. There's a huge effect that gets hit when something goes crazy and people get used to it hire up to it, start trying to meet the demand for it, and then that demand goes away. And then we go, that's a tremendous amount of pain. I had to lay off all of these people. Well, you shouldn't have had them in the first place because that was an unnatural growth. So the pain comes in that correction. Here's what's different now that's never happened in our history. We couldn't hire the people. So as these sectors are exploding, Job openings exploded with it. Manufacturing, I just got done telling you, uh, durable goods, we spent in one year what we normally spend in four years. So manufacturing companies are trying to hire like crazy because they're trying, they think this is real. They think this curve is real. They have almost a million job openings right now. This is unbelievable. If you go back before COVID, they were around 380,000. And now you have a million, okay? But you have to understand, they're trying to hire for something that's not real. So when this corrects, they never had a chance to hire all those people. So you can't lay off what you don't have. So what you get is a lot of companies easing off on trying to hire. And what does that do? If all of a sudden I had, if I had 20 companies trying to hire one person and they're in a bidding war for that person, and now 15 of those companies are like, I don't need them anymore. And now it's down to five. I still need that worker, but now there's a lot less wage pressure. There's a lot less ferocity, like tenacity, all of those things to acquire that talent that goes down. That's why I keep telling people, recession's the best thing. We have 11 and a half million job openings in this country. 
Before COVID, we had 7 million, and that was a record. If we, this 11 and a half, where we're at, there's, there's no reason to have that based on the normal population growth that we've had. There's no reason to have that many. What's probably more normal is around 7 to 8 million. So if a recession gets rid of the need for about 4 million people, fantastic. But guess what? You still need about 6 to 7 million people. Right. So it's not going to take away the need to hire, but it will take away this insane pressure to try to hire. It seems like it's the, uh, the, the a big problem here is the volatility of, well, I'll call it the market, you know, in the way that, and I don't mean the stock market, I mean the volatility of the economy maybe is a better word. Like something happens, right? COVID yeah. happened. That's really the thing that happened. But it's more what happened with the money that was injected after COVID, but yeah. But I mean, the so, but we had a zero percent, and you look at the market prior to COVID, it was zero percent one year. I don't remember what year. And then like pretty much growth was zero percent. And then it was uh, 16, 20% the next year, which is also weird. So before COVID, things were fluctuating dramatically. And then through COVID, which which had massive effects on people's jobs and different markets were affected differently. Then, but the but the market kept going up, and then we had like two or three twenty percent years in a row, which, to your point, didn't match reality. I think is, yeah. is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah. And so, I, but, and so now it's all dropping, and and which is awful for people to experience. Now you see companies, I, I've just read this morning in one of my updates, and I can't remember what company, uh, uh, companies laying people off now. Like there is, uh, yes. there's, there's layoffs happening but, now. But, but, think, but think about it, Dave. It's just so erratic. Like everything's but, all over the place. But the yeah. question is, is are they paying attention to the data? I mean, if all you hear is we're going into a recession, well, of course, I'm going to lay people off. But if you're, if you're looking at the recession as the correct us back down to normal and get rid of the spike, you don't you don't hire to that level. I think that's what Ron's message is. Yeah. Is so let's talk about who's laying off. Okay, first Google, Twitter, Facebook. They were massively overhired. The the stories that we're hearing coming out of like Twitter, for example, are the stuff of legend. People who are working four hours a week and then taking two months vacation. I mean these 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 industries were massively overhired. Completely not justifiable, especially for what you know what basically they're offering which is fairly much a constant product. So you look at these things. Well, as these companies were laying off, I was getting contacted by reporters going, hey, is this an indication of weakness in IT hiring? And I laughed and I'm like, have you not seen the trend in IT hiring postings? I'm like, they're literally heading into the stratosphere. It's just not Google and Twitter and Facebook. It's all the manufacturing companies who for years are like, I can't find an IT worker. And now with that demand is building up. It's governments who are like, we lost all of our IT workers and we are dying. Like they, we've had these people taken from us and now we have a fixed, like a predictable cons con uh, consumption of labor in a lot of these industries. And their people were all taken from them during this time of soaring wage inflation. And they're desperately trying to fill those things back. I'm like, the demand is absolutely through the ceiling. It's just not in those companies. What got hit last week? Crypto. So you have all of these crypto companies laying off people. They should because they were massively overinflated. Crypto itself overinflated. It's okay to get those corrections. But where people make a, a tragic mistake is when you go, because it's true here, it's going to be true here. It's like you can't make that transitive jump. You know, it, just because crypto does something poorly doesn't mean this is going down. If I go back to the housing crisis, the housing industry and the things that fed it were the ones that felt the most amount of pain. Now, in that particular case, housing affects a significant part of the country. Now, I'll take you back to an earlier crisis that you probably don't remember. And that is after the um, housing market bust, we had an oil run up. I don't know if you remember this, oh, but the yeah. oil industry saw these, like all of this stuff. Well, they found out that this was all being done through basically speculators who were coming in, weren't identifying themselves, basically hiding money that's coming out of the housing industry. So the government said, we need to see who's trading these oil futures. We're gonna, you need to expose the names. The second they did that, oil turned and just nose, took a nosedive. And everybody said, we're gonna go into another recession because the, of the oil industry. But the oil industry, hiring profile, employment levels, impact on everything was so incredibly small. In fact, at the time I said it was 3% of the, 
of the jobs in our country were directly affected by the oil industry, 3%. And naturally, we, didn't, we just skated right through it, not an issue. So the same thing, crypto goes through a thing. Well, there's barely anything attached to crypto. Crypto. So maybe you have some you know, young entrepreneurs who just lost a lot of money. Um, they probably weren't working in the first place. They were just trading crypto. This is not a bad thing if some of these things correct. And it's a harsh thing to say if you're in those industries, you're like, hey, that hurt me personally. But what I'm saying is I'm concerned about the greater economy and why things move. And in these particular cases, what we're seeing, think about this. The auto industry, once they get the chips, we're in a deficit of about 2 million, 3 million automobiles. I mean, people's cars got old, they want to buy new cars, they can't get them. They need to build those things regardless. So even as some things go down, if this industry finally gets their chips in, they're going to need to ramp up. Healthcare is 1.4 million short of the amount of workers that they need. And I think we would all say that healthcare is not one of those people that egregiously hires people. You know what, we just want to have a bunch of nurses standing around in here just in case right. something comes in. That's not true. They hire because they need. And we have so many industries in severe need, restaurants, hotels. I mean, none of our, no restaurants are, are fully staffed right now. They're dying for workers. We need people to be freed up from other things to help feed the other industries that are still very, very short staffed. So a couple of things I want you to hit on, Ron, is the first one I want you to hit on is kind of talking about a lot of our associations that listen in are national associations. They have members in every state. So I want, if you could unpack a little bit what you talked about, about, you know, some states, like South Carolina, you mentioned in, uh, in yeah. your presentation that, you know, they've got a great thing, population coming there, but none of them are working and they're creating more producers or consumers than producers yeah. who can't. So, so kind of unpack that a little bit. Yeah, this is yet another thing. We talk about looking at things like you've never looked at them before, because something that just really you never would have ever considered population growth. If you could get people to move to where you're at, we always talk about this city's booming, this is booming. And this was always a good thing. However, where we are right now, we have a massive surge of retirements that occurred. It not only occurred in the first year of COVID, we had another 1.5 million people go into the retired category between January and April of this year alone. So you have all these people retiring and then they have places that they want to move. Now in the past, like that was a big deal. We have a big retirement community here or here. But we have a labor shortage now. So gaining population without a commiserate gain in the labor force means you have more people coming and going, I need restaurants to do that. I need health care. I need a nursing home. I need you know, uh, more grocery stores and services and products. But there's no one, they're not producing. They're not contributing to the, to the things that they need. They're just consuming it. And this is something we've never, ever had to worry about because we always had the workers. But now we have situations, North Carolina, South Carolina, places here in Florida, where you have, they've gained a lot of retirees. Idaho's another one. But their labor force is not coming close to holding the own with that gain in retirees. And so if you think about, let's just do it from a macro level. Since the beginning of COVID, our population's gone up by about 3.2 million in the United States. Our labor force right now is still 200,000 below the level of labor force that we had in February of 2020. So we don't even have the labor force that we had to service our population back in February of 2020, which I think everybody would argue wasn't enough people then. We were already right. in a huge worker shortage. We had record low unemployment. And now the population's grown by 3.2 million. That's 3.2 million consumers with less of a labor force than we even had back then. That is an incredible strain. That's the stress that you see in so many, like I said, mostly in the service industries. There have all these people, you know, coming into their markets going, we want to go out to eat. So you go to a restaurant, you got people out the door, it's a two hour wait because they only have half the tables open. More consumers, less producers. That's what it kind of looks like in a practical way. Wait, can you, gosh, there's so many things I want to ask you. Uh, I'm going to start with this one. We just posted a position for a marketing coordinator. We got 300 somewhat applications. Yeah. So I don't understand the labor shortage thing because I know when I go to the local deli, they're like, oh, we can't make any more sandwiches. We're all, we're all booked up for 10. We have one person, you know, making the peanut butter and yeah. jellies. Like, what, so why, service industry can't get people. Yeah. Um, but we just got 300 applications. I can't. And, and you know what? Most of them. Um, probably should be working in the deli. Yes, they, they should be working <laughs> at the deli. You know, they're not following the instructions. Uh, and, and I'll tell you just a little more. One, here's, here's exactly what I'm talking about. We asked for people to submit a video, you know, like 
to hear, give us your resume, you know, apply for the job, but also send us a video telling us why you think you'd be a good fit for the job. We don't yeah. care if it's your cell phone, however you send it is fine. Just send us a video. A, a very small percentage of people actually send a video. So although we got 300 some odd applications, it seems like a lot to me. Yeah. We really didn't have to filter through that many because we're only looking at the ones that followed the instructions. But the question is, is how many, my question around you telling us this relevant is how many of those people are currently in a job? Because we're not, we don't have a, when I, when I was in the eighties and nineties, when I was, when I was in my younger days as a baby boomer, there was always one or 2% of America that had a great resume, was reorganized or laid off, but they were unemployed with a resume and had a good work ethic. So there was always a little bit of a pool of people that you could get. They were new blood in the system, but today I, I, every every conference I speak at, I always ask, how many of you in this room, and those crowds of hundreds, hundreds of people, I say, how many people have you had walk in your business in the past 12 months that have that are teachable, trainable, have a good work ethic, and yeah. want to work? And everybody screams, that's a unicorn because they don't exist predominantly. But see, that I think that's the key, Dave, is when you look at the unemployment rates we have and the labor participation rate, everybody that is going to work is working. There's nobody to pull from. So all those 300 predominantly are frustrated in their current job. That's right. And looking to move into your job. And hopefully you get the one that's a good, a good fit. Yeah, there's very I think, that, I think that's the frustration with, with right now with trying to find workers. Yeah, there's a couple of things I want to say around this. First off, uh, right now, you know, I, I speak about this when, I, when I'm presenting. Anybody who's heard this and has had me present in the past year, this is a big thing that I hit on. We are a service economy, but there's no one here to serve us. So we have 7 million job openings of our 11 and a half that do not require a college degree of any kind. But we only have 1.8 million unemployed people who fit that description. So to get those people, you're going to basically have to steal them from somebody else and just pay them more. And in a lot of these cases, you're, you, we have a 3.6% unemployment rate, which is one-tenth away from our all-time ever low historically speaking, ever, not including wartime, which isn't a fair comparison. So you are a really tapped out labor pool. And people are, a lot of the people you're picking up are people who are like, well, I don't like this here. And I didn't like my boss. And I didn't like this. So you have these people who are like jumping jobs. And I don't want to insult all of them. I'm sure some of them are very good people. But the people that are sitting on the sidelines, maybe out of the labor force coming back in, may not have worked in a year or two. I mean, our labor force participation rate hasn't improved in two years. And as people start to come back in again, you know, I had somebody ask me yesterday when I was presenting, you know, why would I want to employ somebody who hasn't even wanted to work in the past two years? I'm like, well, if they dropped out for a really good reason, that's a great one. But if they were looking for every reason possible, because one of the things I talk about is how much credit card debt has been rung back up again and how people have been draining their savings account and their IRA accounts just so they wouldn't have to go back to work. And I'm like, they, I'm like, you're right in the sense that if, if somebody who's looking for a reason to not work and come back in, then yes, that can present uh, that could present a challenge for an employer. But I, I think where Tom is, is right here is that, you know, it's it's starting to try to understand what's the motivation. Did I offer a salary that was just really amazing? And, I'm, and people are just like, well, look, that's a thousand more than I make over here. And if that's the case, you're going to have them for a couple months until they find a thousand more over there. Uh, or is it that your your position was a career step up for them and they were really eager for that next thing and they're going to come in on fire to do that. And I think that's where, you know, good recruiters and everything are going to play a part is helping to kind of weed those things out. But I want I want to kick this back to you because you just said it. And I heard this at a conference I spoke at earlier this year. There was somebody who worked for the airport uh, authority in the town that I was speaking at. They posted two jobs, one for an accountant and one for a maintenance worker. They got 100 applications for the accountant and they got two people for the maintenance worker. And they said, and neither of those two people would they ever wanted to employ. So you look at that and you go, well, why is it that we're seeing all of these applications occur for college degree, typically college degree positions, but we don't see them for the other one? Because let me go back to my earlier example. We have 7 million job openings for people without a high school diploma and 1.8 million people who fit that description who are unemployed. We have about four and a half million job openings for people with a college degree and 2.4 million of those people who are unemployed looking for a job. Isn't it funny that you have way more people with a college degree of some kind who are out of work looking for a job than people without a high school diploma? Isn't that the opposite of everything we ever knew right. our entire lives? This has never happened before. You're seeing something we've never seen. 
higher skilled jobs, they're used to having, you know, not being able to find maybe the greatest worker at any given time. But there's a lot of these people around right now. What we don't have is that traditional blue collar, those lower skilled employees that help the economy just kind of function. That's what we're missing. And you can't just create them because you'd have to take away degrees to get these things. And the jobs are usually lower paid. And your marketing coordinator position, you know, if I'm somebody who was working as an administrative assistant or somebody who was working maybe in a warehouse, and I'm like, I could do that. I've always wanted to do that. I can pitch myself to that, but you're not going to have a person who's a marketing coordinator go out, you know, like, man, that, that job stock in that Amazon thing, that looks really enticing to me. Like, you're not going to see that kind of trade-off going down. You're, yes, you're going to have those anecdotes where it happens, but trust me, in general, that's not the way the world works. So the last thing, Ron, I'd like you to really do, because I think this is where some good takeaways are for an association amongst all the other information you've given, is just at the end of our present, at the end of your presentation, you talked about how you, people, associations and their members need to think differently about how to approach business in the future. And we talked about, you know, the traditional yep. sense is like you need to grow your revenues, grow your revenues. Revenue's got to be up 10% this next year. Instead, because you don't have the workforce to get that output, especially in this inflated time of growth, you got to think more of what kind of standard of living do you want to ha have? What do you want your company to be like? How many employees does it take to do that? And through to that, and that may be saying we're going to do 5% less in revenues, but we're going to have better margins because we're going to be more efficient and leaner. So kind of, kind of, and that probably maybe flies in the face of Dave, who's an entrepreneur of how he thinks, <laughs> you know, he's, he's building a company, but I thought that was very, that was a yeah. lot of revelation there that you talked about. We keep talking about looking at things through a new lens, a lens we've never gotten accustomed to before. You know, the populations in many countries around the world, Japan, Russia and everything, they've already inverted, they're going down. And where we're at in the US, we have a, obviously a surging boomer population. Eventually we're going to make a turn. Now that's going to occur, you know, more towards 2050, maybe 40, 50 going into 60. We're going to have more older people than younger people in this country by 2034. So we, we know that this is kind of occurring. So the, the days of going, hey, I put my money in the market and it grew 7% because the economy was a predictable and expanding thing. But eventually we will become like Japan where the economy is going to invert. You, you know, it's, it's uh, gross domestic product. It's gross national product. It's product. It's being generated for a certain population. Well, if I have less of a population, I don't need as much product. So how do you define success if it's not in growth? And it's going to have to be because we run our business incredibly efficiently. So what I keep telling employers is that the thing that has to start right now, the thing that can't hurt you at all, is first off, come up with a less worker-starved model. Look at what you're doing, invest in the industrial engineering, invest in whatever you need to do to say, how can I ease my dependency on labor? Because that, as an input, is going to be a finite thing going forward and will only get worse as time goes on. Second, I want to be great at what I do. Maybe I'm doing too much. Maybe I don't offer this service and that service anymore, and I pull the people that I have into better, excuse me, higher quality jobs that are doing this kind of stuff that brings great value to our clients. Like we want to satisfy these clients to the hilt. For this thing here, we're going to let another company take that stuff on. Because you know, I could spread myself out thin, constantly be trying to hire for a third shift to, so I can produce this. Or I can say, look, I'm not going to keep banging my head against the wall thing. It's going to happen. So I'm going to focus on doing this. We're going to crush it. We're going to learn how to produce it as most cost effectively as possible. Prices maybe keep going up, but I'm making it more efficiently. And then I gain my profitability in that way. It's a different way of thinking. But we're all going to arrive there at some point. It's just simply the way things are, the way things are going to, to be as time keeps evolving. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not in the next five or 10 years for your industry, but eventually that's going to become a reality. So why wait and do that when we could start to focus on it now? Well, Ron, you know, I know you're a man of data and I, you know, I've, I, I speak on some of this stuff with demographic stuff and I did an interesting thing. So I've got a chart that shows the birth rates from the Bureau of Labor Statistics from 1930 down to this year. And if you take, you know, typical generations are 20 years, if you look at 20 year gaps. And it was interesting that five years ago, the population has been going like this. And five years ago, it got up where it was like 80 to 81 million in 20 year gaps. And the moving average turned five years ago. And now it just dipped below 79 million this past, mm -hmm. this past year. So we've seen kind of the top. And as you said, in our meeting, now we're starting to see the population take a turn and kind of easing down in 20 year bands. So, 
you know, it's, it's kind of interesting trend as we look to, you know, is our market growing or is it getting smaller? Like you're saying. Yeah. I think one thing that everybody kind of has to understand is people who, as you age, especially once you're at retirement, you do spend less, like your prime spending years tend to be in your uh, basically mid thirties up through about your mid fifties. That's when you spend the most money. Right. Uh, and so yeah, I'm, I'm at know, my you, peak right now. Holy college. Yeah. And I think that, you know, college comes, all these other things hit and those, and thank goodness that hits you at a, usually a really good time in your career as well. But that's, so you start off, you're trying to make money when you're young, they're not spending, you know, and what they're spending is mostly really uh, non-durable good type of things. You start making your big consumer good expenditures as you get a little older. Once you get close to retirement age, you just need less. You know, you bought the house, you have the stuff. Now you start getting rid of stuff because your kids moved out. You're moving to a smaller house. You need less stuff. You want cars to last a little longer. You don't, you don't see your future. You know, you're not going to be needing to drive, you know, like crazy anymore. So you start to ease back in those expenses. This is all well documented. I have charts on all of this type of stuff. And so as we see kind of this boomer population, which by the way, we're the yuppies. We always got to remember that. If anybody loved to spend, it was the yuppies of the right. 80s. We, 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 they created that. I don't want to call it we, because I was a child. I was a teenager in the 80s. I was the but, last one. Yeah, there we go. So they loved consumption. And I think what we're seeing in generations now is it's just not that propensity to want to spend as much. So I think you will see a significant buying change as things go on. And people will immediately go, well, that just sounds really bad. And I'm like, it's really not it's it's don't label it as bad or good. It just simply is to change. You know, businesses can still do well. It's just this idea of exponential growth. We've got to kind of get away from that mindset, which I don't think has been a healthy mindset for a long time. So Dave, guess what time it is? No, wait, no. Oh, oh, yeah. you, I, so you've you been jumping in with all these questions. Every time my mouth's like a quarter of an inch <laughs> open, you're like, I got so no, I got a question. So what do we do with all? I mean, you said before we have to focus on efficiency and you yeah. just emphasized it a second ago. Forget about growth. You know, I, I'm in a, I, I think I'm in a niche industry that's a bit of an outlier for that in the way that I'm in SaaS software and SaaS software really is and a lot of tech is about uh, growth and you're not too worried about making money yet especially as a startup your your goal is to acquire as many customers as possible and uh, build a strong base of recurring revenue right? right and then very quickly a switch flips and now you're making a lot of money and and the value of the organization has gone way up so so that's kind of like the SaaS model it's not like a restaurant. It's not like a manufacturing right. business. It's a much different sort of thing. Hence, hence the whole problem with um, WeWork. And I just watched the movie in uh, an Apple TV. Did you guys see that? No. Oh my God! It's called We Crashed. It's about uh, the whole WeWork story of of the guys spending a ridiculous amount of money, like it's a tech company, but it wait, wasn't. Wait. It's not wait. a tech company. And so anyway, great movie. We a, a, a series actually. We Crashed. Um, so, so what do we, aside from focusing on efficiencies and doing more with less, what else do we do with this information other than buckle up and hang on for this roller coaster ride? Yeah. I mean, ultimately I think it's a good question. I would say one of the things that we're learning from, you know, it's what I, I mentioned it before. So there's efficiency is one thing. I think one thing we're learning from the restaurant industry, like fast food restaurants, for example, is sometimes you can only staff the drive through window. And so you're like, look, at least I'm still yeah. providing product. I don't have anybody to handle my counters and everything, but I want to keep the store open. And I want to do this. I think there's something to be learned from this. And that is, you know, I think there's a way of looking at your business and going, what if, what if, if I scenario build and I take myself down to the least amount of work, like what's the least amount of workers I need to do to do the thing that I do as best as I can possibly do it. And then you start to, you know, kind of build up from there. And I think by doing that, you start to learn which occupations, which workers are the most key to uh, the intellectual capital of your organization? So if you're kind of looking at this going, these people here, I mean, without them, we wouldn't even be who we were and we'd probably go out of business. Okay, that's your core employee base. Okay, and then you, as you start to get a little bit more you know, out of, away from that core employee base, it helps you to kind of look at your business and go, okay, if anything were to ever happen, this is probably the area that I would say, we're gonna, we're gonna let that thing go. 
because this is a little, it's the farthest away from the thing that we do really, really well and the thing that I really need to concentrate on. So I think efficiency is kind of covering a term that I would kind of more look at, and that is, you know, this core competency focus of, yes, I want to be efficient, but I really want to do these things really, really well, and I want to start to look at my business as going away from that focal point at the middle. My true need, maybe I have 5,000 employees, but if I really look at what I've got, I, I need 1,000 then the rest of these are people that allow us to do these other things. But I want to start to prioritize, man, we keep having problems staffing this one, and it's so far away from the middle. So maybe we get rid of it. We divest ourselves of that, and we let somebody else handle that. Or maybe I'm like, hey, if that's really valuable, then I may figure out a way of, of doing it better and everything. But if you're constantly fighting, if you're like, I'm afraid of wage inflation, I'm afraid of always being able to staff this thing up, and people don't even seem to like those jobs. You know, the people we hire, they quit so fast. Maybe it's something you start to look at and go, maybe it's not a good idea for us anymore. In the past, people were kind of disposable. When I speak, I always talk about the fact that you got a job and you're like, you know, just be lucky you have a job yeah, and, and do what I told ah. you, son. Just get out there and do what I told you. Like those days are over now. Like people are just like, eh, I don't like this. I don't like the way you talk to me right now. And they bolt for the door. Now, a lot of that is because if the job's terrible, it's hard to keep people in it. And so one of the things I tell employers is, if you love the industry you're in, if you love what you do, then you have to take that passion that you have and you have to get that to the workers that you have. And if there are people that are so far removed from what you're passionate about because what they're doing is so distant from that, that's something you start and you look at and you go, I, I just don't think, maybe this isn't a good idea for us. Cause that, you know what? I wouldn't want that job. That's a terrible job. And maybe we got to figure out a way of not having that job. Does that mean somebody else does that? Or do we look at that process and go, can we just skip this process altogether? You know, the old days, my dad started as an industrial engineer when he was in his 20s. You know, he's 79 now. And you look at that and it's like he spent his notional part of his life examining shop floors and going, where we, where we have waste? Like, where is a person walking a product over here or doing this and figuring out how to get those things to come together? I really feel like we've lost our way because I think we look as an, at industrial engineering as a manufacturing floor function. And we kind of have forgotten that it's practical in almost anything. And he goes back to the movie Office Space, right? Like, well, I'm the person that takes it from this person and gives it to this person. I'm a people right. person. And what does like, he well, do here, Bob? Why can't they Bob? just give it to that person? And he's like, because I'm a people person. Yeah, the Bobs. You and, don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, Ron, here's it's a good uh, point, though. Right. Well, uh, another impact I think on the on the equation of of labor is when you look five to ten years ago. And you look at when I look at my Facebook feed and Instagram, I see a ton of beach body people that use beach body coaches that are doing it self-employed that used to do it. It used to be a, a spouse that worked. Yeah. And now the, the other spouse makes just enough money that if she can, she or he can bring in 12 grand a year doing beach body coach, that's another person out of the system. DoorDash, Uber, Lyft, all these, the Amazon delivery, there's all these individual things. I mean, why, why would I want to work in a, in, in, in a service job when I can, it, be a sole sole proprietor and go out and earn 20 bucks an hour doing Uber. And I granted there's expenses against that, but you know, but I can, I can make my schedule. So there's all these new gig economy jobs that popped in that are yanking people out of the manufacturing and the professional base because they want the flexibility thing. in, you know, in, in life. Last year we saw 1.4 million people file for a new business up dramatically from what we had seen prior to COVID. The vast majority of those people were in retail. And there are things like, you could be an Amazon affiliated retailer, you could be Etsy, which is apparently what we're starting to figure out a lot of this is. And I'm becoming more and more aware of people who are like, hey, my spouse gets a good enough living that I really have, I've always been into making this particular craft. I've been doing this particular thing. And now I have an Etsy store and I'm able to sell enough product that it's like a good supplemental income. And I'm, by the way, I work from home now. I'm raising my children. Like I don't have to re-engage in a full-time job. This is where, what I said earlier starts to matter. These aren't yuppies. They're not infatuated with the material side of where things are. Having something that's good enough is good enough. And in nowadays, we build such high quality products that you really don't need to have like a really, really shiny, huge automobile. You know, you, you, if you can get uh, an efficient, fuel efficient car that you're using barely ever, you don't care what people see you in. You know, so I think the buying patterns of people are changing as well because it's their personalities that are different. And what, you know, defines success for them is like the success is that I get to do things on my terms. That's success. 
And it's like, that's a pretty significant change from what we're used to. And once again, it's not bad or good. It just simply is. Right. Well, you know, Dave, I always say, when you talk about efficiencies for any business, I always tell our members, and this is a great line, I think, for every single association be for the future to be sharing with their membership, is that the companies that are going to win the day are those that can take an order in receiving or order taken and get it to order satisfaction and shipping with the least amount of human connection as possible. Now, that doesn't mean you get rid of the human labor, but you implement an, as much automation and or artificial intelligence or robotics in the system where you got a happy blend of human, human labor and, and automation that pushes out the maximum, pushes it through the system as maximum as you can get it. You know, and you got to figure that out. If you don't figure that out, if you just say, I like what you say, Ron, if you just say human, 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 you're going to be frustrated for the next decade. Hey, Ron, I, last, and this is a, more of a silly question, anything else, but I'm a big Elon Musk fan and I'm one of the he read our papers. boys. What's that? He read the demographic. I mean, he didn't read demographic drought. We, well, we think he read it, but he read the original article talking about the shortage of people. It got put in the, I mean, somebody, it was a Wall Street Journal. Basically, they wrote about the paper. He read that and he, he's like our biggest spokesperson. He just doesn't know who he is. <laughs> no, I, I, that's what I was going to say. A lot yeah. of the things that he says are, uh, are in line with the things that you're saying. Which yeah, he read his greatest fear. What's his greatest fear? Shortage of people. Yeah. Population, Population decline. decline. That's his greatest fear. It's and, a certainty that it's going to happen. And and it's it's got him all shaken up because I think because he doesn't know what to do about it. Like the earth exploding or the earth getting becoming inhabitable. He's like, that's easy. We'll just go to Mars. But population decline. Yeah. That's one he doesn't know itself. But uh, he's because it's not... predictable. You just count the people. That's what's so funny. Yeah, that's people why I tell people this people isn't. We don't that... estimate. We I know. <laughs> people people think that these people are going to come out from other planets or somewhere. I, I literally <laughs> had a lady, Brian. I was having a conversation with a lady who was barking about um, uh, self checkout and automated in Publix and some others. And 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 I got on. I and she and she's like, they just need to hire more workers. And so I started sharing the data and she's like, Tom, that's a bunch of bull. You're, you're drinking the Kool-Aid and talking the rhetoric. I'm like, this isn't rhetoric. This is fact. It's fact. I was like, you not know we have 11.5 million jobs. Are you not aware that this is an all time record by magnitudes? It's when I started sharing ignorance your, is incredible. When I started sharing your data, she all of a sudden started saying, like, okay, I guess you're making a lot of sense. Yeah, it's like when I talk about immigration, I'm like, we're down by 2 million immigrants. When, and everybody immediately thought, goes, well, what about illegals? And I'm like, you realize we're down by 2 million immigrants. Like, there's a lot of people who are approved for visas. They can't get in. And it, it's like, and by the way, we averaged a million immigrants a year up until about five years ago. It's like, we don't have that anymore. And by the way, that pool is going away from us. And I don't know if we're going to be able to get it back, even if we tried to increase the amount of immigration. I'm not so sure we can get these people. And it's like, and so it's like, if you didn't have the children, and other and you can't get the children from other people's country. That's not, that's not good. We're not their children, but they're adults. Uh, after they get older, where do you think workers are going to come from? Because you didn't have them, and you can't get them from other places. So are Martians going to come down and do the work? And that's where we always end up with what's going to be robots. And that's one of the things I talk about is robotics and AI have literally generated millions and millions of jobs. Like they don't destroy jobs; they create them. And they create them in mass. I mean, the World Wide Web created entire industries that we'd never heard of, like Amazon, who's now the largest employer in the world. You know, technology creates, it doesn't destroy. And uh, it's interesting to watch these dynamics at play where people went during the course of their lifetime. They went from saying, I'm really afraid that either a machine or an immigrant is going to steal my job to, can we please have machines and immigrants <laughs> because we're dying. Right. So Elon, back to Elon, uh, you know, one of his businesses is creating robots. And, mm -hmm. and when I say robots, I don't mean machine robots. I mean, like literally like, like what we envisioned as kids walking right. around, helping us cook and clean and mow the lawn and drive us places. And, you know, I mean, and, and so I, I, I think this could possibly be part of the solution to population decline is having way more automation help us with the low level jobs, which would mm -hmm. include all the transportation stuff. And uh, I mean, it, just about everything you can imagine working outside, even brick building and, and brick laying and mowing lawns, like stuff like this could be done by machines. Yep. 
So somebody has to design, manufacture, install, yeah. technicians, uh, market, sell. Uh, each For each robot, I need about 20 people that are going to help <laughs> me get that robot out there. <laughs> and then, first. by the way... At first, until it becomes a common, so are the not a commodity, but like robots? cars. Yeah. There's way more cars than there are people selling and making them. What's an interesting concept is you're talking about the uh, self-driving car. About 10 years ago, that's all we heard about. About seven years ago, they were starting to, you know, Jim was doing this experiment in San Francisco. We're trying these self-driving cars. And so they were like, here it comes. Here, we're going to have a country <laughs> full of self-driving cars. So can you tell me right now? When you're out on the highway, how many of those self-driving cars are you seeing right now when you're driving around? I'm driving one. Oh, no, you're talking driving. about totally self-driving, meaning like no, nobody no driving. Meaning wheel. there's nobody in the car except you're the car in the back seat. The Nobody's in the front seat. No, yeah, there, the answer it's... is zero. There's none. And seven years ago, it was going to be by 2022. I mean, I'm certain that they thought there were going to be hundreds of semis on the road that were self-driving, but there yeah. were some problems with that. And it's the same thing I talk about when I speak, and it's called nuance. Yeah, there are. When you call a call center, you don't want to talk to a robot. You want to talk to a person because you are nuanced. You have things that are not in the menu system. There are things that, well, no, I just need you to update the card. You keep charging my old card, which is, is no longer there. Like, I just need, who do I talk to? Where's the menu option? And you get so frustrated. In a call center, that's not going to kill anyone. Can I speak to your supervisor? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Supervisor. <laughs> so, that doesn't hurt anybody ultimately. Yes, you lose consumers because they're so frustrated with your process that they just you know, stop buying your product. But nuance is deadly. If it's in a hospital, if it's in, even if it makes a sandwich wrong and puts a, 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 you know, doesn't catch the fact that a piece of the broiler just fell into the hamburger and I serve it on a hamburger, there are consequences that occur when these things are affecting people. And I think. The, the idea for robotics to work well, it's called collaborative roboting. So it's not just a robot doing a function like in an auto plant, right? It picks up the part, it puts the part down. Collaborative roboting is me going to that thing going, hey, what do you think is the best way of putting that product, putting that part down? And the robot's like, pick up and put down. And the best experts in this space are like, look, we are still 20 years away from good. I'm talking serviceable, dependable, collaborative robotics, which is really kind of smartly responding to that situation. We can see anecdotes. They love to put it on 60 Minutes, and we all watch it, and we go, wow, that's amazing, as some robot does there. That robot is a prototype that they're showing the three or four things that they know are not going to break on national television. Right. But you put that in a nuanced situation, and it's going to quickly fall apart, just like call center technology was invented in the late 1970s. It's 2022. Everybody hates it. So Dave, you know what time it is? I do. Now I do. <laughs> this is this has like been so interesting. I mean, it's kind of like it was. It's hard to shut it down because it's got so many big picture connections and impacts. To, but I, I, I'll end on this before we do this, Dave. So everybody thinks robotics is the only way you automate. And I walked into one of my members' plants, and he normally would be paying say forty forty thousand dollars or so to the person to be in the front office, greet you, get you who you want, and handling administrative stuff. You basically walked in, it's a square room, three vending machines, and there's a machine there that says, please look in here and type in your name, take your picture, who are you here to see? Click, boom. He gets a text, he is in the office in two minutes. You never see a human being. He is able to take that $40,000 person and reassign their salary and their duties into quality and, and basically kill two birds in one stone. And, I, and so people don't think to them, they minimize the validity of looking at every function, how you can, even the, the person that answers the phone, how can you automate every single thing in your office or do the collaborative thing. So you've got a nice blend of, of automation and human beings. You know, it, it, I mean, that was one to me that, that struck the, the core that said, look, automation is just not about a line of machine. It's about looking at everything you do in the administrative offices and everything. So are you ready, Dave, on that note to do our last thing? Hit it, man. So Ron, each, I think we did this last time, but every, we each take a turn on sharing in our discussions. What's the big takeaway that we've talked about it, that you would like to enforce or that you heard or think's a big deal in this conversation. So, so, so I'll go first. You know, for me, the big takeaway is just for associations listening in to pay attention to this data, this, these trends, and quit acting like there's a group of people that's going to come down on earth or be born soon enough where we can handle and create jobs. They're not. 
Quit building skill centers that are going to be empty because there's nobody to go in them. Everybody that's working is working. You know, I think you do need skill centers because we need to keep, but these companies, these people that are building new skill centers, it's kind of like, like you said, Ron, somebody um, created a, a, a market that's going to create a need for 200,000 jobs in a city. It's like, well, who's going to work them at two and a half unemployment? So focus on the trends get it in front of your members so they can start looking at how they're going to do business differently in the future. Cause it's not going to be about growing sales unless you're a startup. It's going to be about how do we get enough people to do the things we want to do great and provide a good living for us, our mem- our families and our community. So Ron, what, what, or Dave, you go next. Yeah. So for me, it's a, a realization and a validation. My validation was, was I couldn't agree more Ron that I think people overestimate how quickly or underestimate how long it's going to take for um technology to become mainstream mm-hmm. I, I could go on and on and on about that alone um that makes me a pessimist in terms of expectations so uh, that was validation i'm i'm i was i'm pleased you agree with my or i we're on the same page there Good. the the um the realization was a better understanding of the supply uh, breakdown, the supply chain mm-hmm. breakdown. Like I, that, that was helpful for me. I, I, you, you opened my eyes to some things. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with that. <laughs> it's more like a good joke. Like, oh, I, that's, I got one in the back pocket now. But uh, anyway, yeah, that's that's a realization and a validation for me. What about you, Ron? What's a big takeaway for you? What's a, what's or maybe what's a point you want to emphasize? You know, one of the points that I make sure I emphasize every time I speak is if the future means less service. So basically, we had a huge population. We need to put those people to work. We're enterprising. We created all kinds of jobs. We created very high touch, high customer. Uh, impact organizations. We all want to, the customer is always right. We want to please the customer. And we're going to get into a situation where the level of service that we've become accustomed to is going to really change. It's already changing. You go to a restaurant, the wait times are a lot more. You want to go in, but only the uh, drive through is open. And then the drive through takes a long time. Or maybe you go there and it's a huge line at that drive through. Instead of getting angry and yelling at the people and telling everybody how terrible their service is, how about you understand that those people are hanging on by a thread? And your bad conversation could make them quit. And then the places that you value, the, the businesses you're used to going to, they may not be there anymore. You know, the next time you're in a hospital and it's taking a long time to be seen, instead of yelling at the nurse or anything, understand that they're short staff and that these things are doing it. Thank them for the job that they're doing. Appreciate that all these people, all the roles that they play, no matter how different they are from your job, without their jobs, society would be a pretty terrible place to live. Value people a lot more. Stop yelling at people. That's the big takeaway. That is such a huge point, man. People are huge. angry, man. <laughs> There's are. a lot of angry people out there these days. I think days. it's bad now. Just wait. <laughs> well, Big Dave, that was an awesome. We almost went an hour, man. That's an, I think 58 minutes. That's That was great. I know. That might be our longest. Yes. Ron, Ron thank you for Sorry we kept you so man. long here, You're Ron. Great. Thank, yeah, thanks problem. very much. Ron, if people want to connect with you, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Yeah, LinkedIn is my absolute preferred place. So if you do the LinkedIn thing, it's I think I'm Ron L. Hetrick, always one thing. So if you guys want, I can give you my LinkedIn address, but it's, yeah, wherever the LinkedIn That's thing. That's good. People can find you. And you are right. always, I'm always putting up new stuff because as I get, as I see something that's like, wow, people need to know about it. I put the, I put it up there and I show you like, this is what's interesting about this. And uh, I have a lot of news uh, stations and stuff that follow me and they'll take literally, they'll take my stuff and put it right into their articles. So uh, i it's a pretty interesting thing. Like I always, I don't try to waste motion. If there's something up there, it's something I think you should probably want to look at. Hey, Ron, what are you? What do you do? What are you like a statistician? Are you a futurist? Like, are you? What are you? I am a labor economist. So I've been a labor economist for about thirty years. I also, for the company I work for, MZ Burning Glass, uh, I oversee the product that we sell to the staffing industry. So it's to help staffing industries understand. Hey, I'm about to. I was just asked by a company to fill this particular job over here, and then they can look at it and say, whoa. I don't know if I want to do that now. If I do it, it's going to have to be at this, you know, rate. And I need to understand, like, you can't have this in your job description anymore. Like, it's to help people to basically try to fill jobs at a right rate a little bit quicker than what they're doing. Thanks for joining us, Ron. Really appreciate your time. Dave, good to see you, man. Till next time. Remember, we're not just strong. We're association strong. <laughs>
We hope you gain some inspiration that will help you run an efficient and effective association just like a business and maybe laugh a little with us. If you have a topic you would like to hear us talk about, or if you just want to reach out to us for any reason, you can contact us at Tom at TomMorrison.biz or Dave at PropFuel.com. Give us a review if you haven't already, and don't forget, subscribe and share with your friends.